Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Postseason time across minor league baseball as we welcome you into this week's edition of the Show Before the Show podcast from MILB.com. Hi, everybody. I'm Tyler Maughan. Sam Dykstra is at Milb headquarters in New York City. Hi, Sam. Hi, Tyler. How, how are uh, you? How are, uh, how are you back in America? I'm good. I'm good. I went out to uh, to breakfast today and got a, uh, a cinnamon roll doused in both frosting and bacon, so I'm really <laughs> back to uh, back to America. Just but no, I'm good. the flag right into your veins. Exactly. <laughs> just taking it, mainlining the flag into my veins. Um, no, I'm good. I was in uh, I was in South Korea for the last week. For those who may have missed last week's edition of the show, did some broadcast for the uh, the Women's Baseball World Cup, which is currently in its uh, in its second round. The United States will not be meddling for the first time in the history of that event. So in case you were wondering, um, that's the story there with Team USA. But more baseball to be talked about, and it is uh, right here on the MILB.com podcast, which you can find, by the way, here in our 75th episode, which we discovered last week is the Diamond Anniversary, but it turns out there are like 40 different Diamond Anniversaries just because the Diamond industry wants to huck diamonds to you all the time. But either way, this episode, which we'll call our Diamond Edition, uh, is uh, <laughs> right now available where you're finding it on iTunes, on the Stitcher app, and also at MILB.com slash podcast. You can find us all those spots, and you can give us a rating and a review and a subscription uh, wherever you find us and listen to us. And as always, we thank you so much for tuning in. Got a good show coming up for you today. One playoff series that has already wrapped up, among others, is the 2016 Gulf Coast League season, which came to a close with the GCL Cardinals claiming the title there, and GCL Cardinals star and 2016 St. Louis Cardinals first-round draft selection Dylan Carlson will join the show. Talking to Dylan coming up here in just a little bit about his debut pro season, winning a GCL title, all that kind of fun stuff, but uh, that a little bit down the road. Today, we dive into three strikes with postseason action which has started all across the levels in minor league baseball and is underway at the game's highest levels double a and triple a here are the early returns uh through one game in these series by the time you listen to this game two will have elapsed in most if not all of these uh weather dependent and otherwise but the northwest arkansas naturals and midland rock hounds each with a one game to none series lead in the texas league the jackson generals on a tyler o'neill walk-off homer with a one game to none series lead in their southern league playoff set pensacola also up one game to none in their half trenton and akron with game one victories in the eastern league nashville and tacoma with game one victories in the pacific coast league and scranton wilkesbury and gwinnett up one game to none in their stories. Sam, the early storylines in double A AA and triple A postseasons take us away. Yeah, so um, you know, some interesting stuff last night. Playoffs really get started in earnest. Uh 
focusing on these kind of top two levels, you know, the fact that the Gwinnett Braves are up right now in their series one nothing after winning that horrible, horrible IL South. <laughs> uh, we talked about it last week and previously just that race with all teams, you know, under below 500. They won the division at 13 games under 500. They were right. 65 and 78 and won the division. So Gwinnett Braves forever fighting against the dying of the light, get a one nothing <laughs> advantage there on Columbus. Um, that that's just fascinating to me because that that team you look at even down to prospects, it's not n- incredibly interesting uh, who's there. They're actually sending Aaron Blair tonight, so they get a rehabbing major leaguer uh, getting a start, which always feels a little unfair. Yeah, but if you remember what the minor leagues are for. It's just a feeder system for the majors. So, you, you know, these guys need to get starts. They need to get innings. They need to get at-bats. Andre Ethier, you know, played in a, I think it was a 16-inning game for Rancho Cucamonga yesterday. Um, so, you know, these things happen. Um, but that would be just hilarious if Gwinnett, you know, uses a good start from Aaron Blair, gets a 2 nothing lead over Columbus. We'll see. Have to, have to see how that shakes out. Um, and that does happen a decent a bit uh, in the minors. There were, uh, I believe, two players for the uh, for the Trenton Thunder who made playoff appearances in rehab starts. I know Andy Pettit made Andy Pettit a rehab start for them. Yeah, and yeah. I believe in that same year they also had somebody else on the roster during the postseason. But either way, I mean, yeah, like you said, when you think about the minor leagues, the way they're supposed to be used, I mean, this is the point of them. It doesn't matter to the Atlanta Braves if the Gwinnett Braves are going to give innings to Aaron Blair in a rehab start if it's a playoffs. It works just the same for them, so it's kind of the point. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one other thing I kind of want to touch on for me personally, and then we can, I'll throw it back to you, Tyler, just at these double A AA and triple A levels. Um, you know, we talk so much in the majors about guys who win awards and how winning matters. And we can have that debate another day of how, whether that's a crock or whether that, there's actually something to that. Uh, but Tyler O'Neill, you know, last night getting that walk off Homer to give Jackson a three, nothing win over Montgomery. I mean, he's the guy you wanted in that position. If you're the Jackson generals, this is the Southern League MVP, uh, competed for the Triple Crown in that league, competed for the Slash Line Triple Crown in that league, and then comes up first game, kind of plays the, you know, what forever be in my mind is the David Ortiz role of just the guy walking off and in that big spot, the guy you want performing in the clutch. Uh, you know, that, that's, uh, again, another debate whether the clutch actually exists, whether that's a tool or not. But, um, you know, if he can put together a postseason that's just moment after moment of things like this. You know, we don't vote for Milby's until after the season. A lot of team, a lot of uh, publications right now are putting out their hitters of the year, their offensive players of the year. USA Today named Alex Bregman its minor leaguer of the year. Uh, MLB Pipeline today named Alex Bregman its hitter of the year, and Tyler Glass now its pitcher of the year. Baseball America has its you know first team and second team all minor leagues out. Uh, we'll get to our kind of awards at, in a couple months after this stuff dies down a little bit and we can read the landscape a little more. But you know, if Tyler O'Neill puts on some crazy run, I might consider him over Bregman. I, I'm, I'm not wow. going to immediately say that's the case. And you know, I'm not going to put a whole lot of stake in a, just a couple game sample here. But man, that would be one heck of a story that w- would be awesome to tell if Tyler O'Neill just puts together a lot of these moments leads Jackson to a double-A title. 
just it's just a thought I have. You know, we we can discuss it again next week. He could go over sixteen. Yeah, he could get. You know, Montgomery could take the series, and we're not talking about this again. And Bregman, it even if you know O'Neill does all these things, I still probably will vote for Bregman for Offensive Player of the Year when the come out. But it's just food for thought. That's all I'm saying. I'm just throwing it out there. Okay. If you, you know, people think I'm wrong. Feel free to tweet me. I'll, I'll explain myself. All that kind of jazz. But. Uh, yeah, it was a re- really fun moment last night with Tyler O'Neill, and we'll see where it goes from there. Uh, the Tyler O'Neill topic segues us to the topic that I want to discuss, and this is a larger picture topic than just the minor league playoffs in 2016, but that's where it starts, because let me run you through a list of playoff contenders right now, teams that are in postseason series by name. The Tacoma Rainiers in the Pacific Coast League semifinals. The Jackson Generals obviously talking about O'Neill and the walk-off victory. Yesterday, the Bakersfield Blaze, who are currently in the California League's first round. The Midwest League's round one. Clinton Lumber Kings have a 1-0 series lead there. The Northwest League, the Everett Aqua Sox, will play in the semifinals of that circuit. And in the Arizona League, the AZL Mariners, swept the AZL finals for a championship there. So what do those teams all have in common? They're all Mariners affiliates. Last year, the Seattle Mariners, as an organization, posted the sixth worst winning percentage in minor league baseball. Their affiliates win a combined 392 and 444. It was a 469 winning percentage. It was the fifth worst mark in ba- sixth worst mark in baseball. The Washington Nationals, Colorado Rockies, Los Angeles, Angels, Milwaukee Brewers, and Miami Marlins were the only teams worse. Now, as Sam kind of noted, winning, does winning really matter? We're not really sure what exactly it means as far as development, yada, yada. But The Mariners made sweeping changes to their player development staff over the offseason, and we had an interview with the Mariners' new director of player development, Andy McKay, and when we talked with Andy McKay, one of the points that he continuously hit was these guys need to learn how to win together at the minor league level. And what does that mean for 2016? The Mariners as an organization, were the best team among over organiza- overall organizational standings in all minor league baseball. Their teams went 451 and 314, a 590 winning percentage. Every one of their affiliates is in the postseason. And that's not with some massive changeover and some big overhaul in the system. This isn't a, a Phillies-like rebuild. This isn't the Astros five years ago. There's talent in that system that wasn't there in 2015. Kyle Lewis obviously comes to mind. The draft selection, Dan Vogelbach, a trade acquisition those types of things but this is not some massive sea change we've seen in the Mariners system and the turnaround there is remarkable especially because of the fact that that's a philosophy that Andy McKay very much wanted implemented for that organization but that fascinates me about this year's playoffs the Mariners terrible a year ago bring in that new front office culture all of a sudden everybody's winning everybody's in the playoffs yeah yeah and you you wonder how much of that is kind of fickle I mean it it is the Mariners it's how you group teams together, it's all that kind of stuff. And they always talk about, you know, to a man, every farm director will tell you we love winning. I mean, we want our guys to win. We want them to get to the majors knowing what it feels like to win. They're not going to be overly disappointed if that's not the case. I mean, you can build a winning atmosphere with the the right collection of guys uh, in the major league level. But for it to work this well in year one is just fascinating. Uh, and, and like you said, I mean, there are, I remember I did the farm system rankings beginning of the year and you, the way you kind of write it up is like Alex Jackson was the only top 100 candidate even at that time. That was, you know, Tyler O'Neill had questions about coming out of the Cal league. Uh, Kyle Lewis, like you said, not in the system yet. Um, Luis Gohara, 
you know, just had struggles in lower levels, hadn't really gotten above class A, hadn't right. pitched really a full season even. We weren't sure what to make about DJ Peterson as of yet. He'd had the one great year, the injury, had some inconsistencies. There were a lot of guys with question marks in that system. Right, and some of those question marks still remain, but a lot of those guys are certainly ticking up. I mean, O'Neal is a solid top 100 prospect now, might even be top 50. Uh, Gohara looks like a future you know, mid rotation guy, if not higher, if that, yeah, his ceiling is pretty, pretty high uh, as a big left hander. So there's just been even player development this year, not just winning, but right. the, the players are decidedly better in that system. Uh, and it would be interesting to see how it's going to pay off in the playoffs. Uh, I love, we'll get to this in our next segment, but you mentioned the AZL Mariners. I always find that fascinating of these uh, lower level circuits, specifically the complex levels. You know, th- this is the first taste of pro ball for a lot of these guys. So what is what is that first taste going to be like? Is it going to be sour? Is it going to be sweet? Is it, uh, you know, are they going to dread having to show up to the park every day? Or is it going to be a fun atmosphere? You know, for those AZL Mariners, it seems like it was going to be a fun atmosphere this summer. Now, what does that translate to going forward? Pretty crazy. This is a pretty uh, pretty crazy turnaround for the Seattle Mariners system. If you are a uh, an M's fan, a lot to be high on. And, oh, by the way, you've graduated guys like Edwin Diaz, who came into the year. Some question marks. People didn't yeah. really know how he was going to gonna fare. He gets promoted right from double A and becomes a, a frontline guy, um, you know, who's so far through, 90, through 39 games in his major league career has an ERA of 2.48. I mean, this is the stuff the Mariners right now are kind of everything they're touching is turning to gold. And that's an organization that's needed that for a while. They've needed that in fusion of excitement it seems like it's happening but that really stood out to me there's so many other good storylines in the playoffs but you know thinking back on that Andy McKay interview and then looking through the minor league postseason field it's like wait a minute seems to be a common thread in a lot of these leagues yeah no for sure uh you know what we touched on Milby's before the Mariners will certainly be a nominee uh I'm going to start putting those together within the next week but uh they'll certainly be a nominee for top farm system um so yeah, if you if you agree with us, you can vote for him then. Uh, and you know, if we we'll see how the staff votes. We haven't really taken an unofficial poll or anything like that. But that story, whether it's in that Milby story or through some other way, uh, we'll have to tell. You know, when the dust kind of settles. Uh, so this uh, off season. Strike one, higher level playoffs. Strike two, lower level playoffs. From Class A advance on down the California League and the Carolina League. Obviously a big storyline with Bakersfield final season there. The Blaze trying to go out with a flourish. They trail the San Jose Giants after game one with game two coming up uh, in that series. Carolina League, Myrtle Beach trying to defend a Mills Cup title from 2015. Florida State League, the Bradenton Marauders already into the Florida State League finals with a 2-0 series win over St. Lucie. Full season Class A. South Atlantic League and the Midwest League underway in their sets as well. And the New York Penn League, the Northwest League, the Appy League is already wrapped up. The Johnson City Cardinals uh, with a sweep to win the Appalachian League crown. We'll talk about that a little bit coming up here uh, in just a little while with our guest today, Dylan Carlson, who is part of the GCL winning uh, GCL Cardinals. And, uh, of course, the Pioneer League and the AZL. We talked about the Mariners as well. So um, a lot of series going on, and they're very quick series at these lower levels. Who's sticking out to you there? Yeah, so we mentioned the Cardinals um, kind of the same way, just to transition from the Mariners talking so much about them. The Cardinals already have two championships. Three have been awarded. Two have been Cardinals affiliates, and they're both at lower levels. So Johnson City and the the GCL cards uh, both get wins. Those are levels where you know a lot of these guys are getting their first taste of minor league action. 
Um, like I said, I, I, I just find that fascinating of, you know, what is your introduction to pro ball and what does that mean for your future? Uh, I know a couple of years ago, the GCL Nationals, I wish I could remember the year off the top of my head. I want to say 2013. Yeah. Uh, just had a crazy winning percentage, around 700, I want to say. Easily the best in the minors. And we haven't really heard that much about the, the prospects from that team since. So it, it doesn't always pretend future success. Um, yeah, but that you know, team, it's by better the way, than the alternative. It was 2013. That team went 49-9. and nine. Yeah. An 845 winning percentage. So I was 28 and 2 at home. Yeah. They definitely won the Milby that year for team of the year. Thankfully, (laughs) they won the championship too. So it wasn't, it made it easy for us. But um, yeah. So the, you know, for a lot of these guys, this is their introduction to the playoffs. Uh, I'll touch on Gleber Torres, who's, this isn't his introduction to the playoffs. He actually played in the playoffs last year with Class A Advanced Myrtle Beach in the Cubs system. Uh, helped them win a Carolina League championship. Didn't do that great in those playoffs, but was there for the experience. Now, you know, he's been traded uh, to the Yankees system, now playing with Jorge Mateo on that uh, really good Tampa infield. That would be really interesting to see him get two titles with two different organizations, both at the Class A advanced level, uh, just in case there's somebody who doesn't know the entire story. Torres was promoted at the very end of last year. So he spent almost all of the year at Class A South Bend, uh, got pushed up to Myrtle Beach just for those playoffs. So this is not a guy who's necessarily repeating a level. Uh, it's more just, you know, last year they wanted to push him, just see what they could get at the end of the year. Now he's getting a more full Class A advanced experience. Uh, they weren't quite ready to push him up to Trenton just to, you know, that that is certainly a big jump going high A to double A. So they just wanted him to find his success in his new organization. That would be really cool if he could were to get two rings in two years like that, uh, and it would certainly be a you know good first step uh, in the Yankees system. Uh, and you know we'll we'll talk more about what that's going to mean for Torres and Mateo going forward, how the Yankees are going to handle them as a group. Uh, but if they were to get a ring in their first partnership, that would be fascinating for me. Minor league playoffs at the uh, the upper levels and the lower levels going on right now, and um, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in uh, in those lower level series. A lot of them are so much quicker. I mean, the California League is kind of the one that stands out to me with Bakersfield, obviously, but the the little mini series that those teams take on in the California League before getting to the uh, the league semifinals. But the, those quick best of three series, I mean, it's it's a sprint. You got to be ready. You got to be ready right out of the gate. Um, in those series and uh, so you can watch all those games the ones that have MILB TV coverage you can find at MILB.com and uh, with that we'll switch it up to uh, strike three get out of some postseason talk and just talk about this season in general 2015 year of the prospect 2016 really came with a lot of that same graduation of talent but the way the bar was set two seasons ago kind of made us i think feel somewhat spoiled in that you look at guys like you know dansby swanson who make their major league debut this year guys like lucas Giolito, julio urias and it didn't feel necessarily like last year but there were a ton of top talent guys uh who moved into the big leagues this year and really defined the minor league season when you look back at 2016 in the way that this season played out as a whole what stands out to you the most yeah i I think we have more questions than answers after this season is over than we did coming into it uh you know we after last year it was the the year of the prospect we kind of said okay what's next what does this mean going forward and you know i i would kind of 
think of this is, was the year maybe we put the brakes on that a little bit. Uh, maybe last year's class was just super special. I mean, that's certainly possible. Um, you know, graduating Chris Bryant, graduating Addison Russell, a bunch of different guys doing extremely well at the major league level. Uh, I'm looking at what the uh, prospect list was before they updated it for 2016. So this is the end of 2015. Top 10 prospects. Byron Buxton, Corey Seager, Corey Seager, by far and away, the universe rookie of the year. Yeah. Uh, Lucas Giolito, Julio Urias, J.P. Crawford, Joey Gallo, Tony or Tyler Glasnow, Yohan Mankata, Brendan Rodgers, and Danby Swanson. And then we can keep going. Trey Turner, Orlando Arcia, that's the top 12. Of those, only Crawford and Rodgers didn't play in the majors this year. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the guys kind of got pushed this year. You know, after last year, we, we kind of thought, well, maybe major league teams would push their top t- or their top young talent to the majors and see if they could sink or swim. And they did that. And I, I can't, with the, the exception of Seager, maybe uh, a lot of these guys didn't exactly swim um, in the way that we always hoped they would. I mean, you wanted to see Lucas Giolito just take the world by storm um, kind of be that next guy next to Zimmerman and Strasburg. And that quite hasn't quite happened yet. Uh, Glass now has some injuries, I know with his shoulder, um, but you know hasn't taken the world by storm yet in the majors either. Moncada gets the call up. He might be the most aggressive of the group, or might feel that way between him and Swanson. Um, yeah, you know, he's striking out left and right. It's early days yet for that, but yeah, this I I don't know. I it, my next question is, what does this mean for next year? I mean, does this mean that they're going to be cautious again, or does this mean you know that? We're going to keep trying to hammer this out. I, I honestly don't know. Maybe it's a little too close. Um, but, you know, in terms of prospects news, I mean, we can talk about this might be the year we remember as one of the final years of the or the final year of a 10 team California League and yeah. uh, a lot of shifting plates going into 2017. So this is like this kind of feels like the last chapter or last page in a chapter of minor league baseball from that aspect. But from a prospect point of view, I didn't get as many answers this year as I thought it was. I I think that's as plainly as I can put it. I agree that um, you know it last year felt so unique in the way that not only did all this top talent graduate, but it all graduated and all made impacts in big ways. And this year feels more like a normal season where guys are guys are gonna sink a lot in their early stages of major league careers. And you know what, honestly. That almost feels like a return to normalcy rather than, oh, man, last year all these guys are ready. Call everybody up. Everybody's set to go for the big leagues. It almost feels like you kind of like watching prospects struggle at the major league level because when they figure it out, it's so much more gratifying. Um, even in the you know the last few weeks, Julio Arias takes the ball, and every time he does, it's kind of appointment television. But especially over the last few weeks when he's really, really started to look good, that's what's so fun about how these guys – develop once they get to the major league level you expect that curve to take a dip for a while from the minor league success and then start gradually climbing back up which is what made 2015 so unique but um, one of the things you noted that I think really stands out to me as a story of 2016 is a lot of change at the minor league level uh, in 2015 and 2016 but especially this year from a franchise standpoint with Bakersfield and High Desert uh, no longer being a part of the California League going into the 2017 season I think that really with as unique of a storyline as that is not just teams moving but a reshaping 
of leagues for the first time really in a generation that we've seen. That's what really stands out to me about this season because, you know, it's very bittersweet. It's really exciting for the people at Kinston. It's really exciting for the people presumably of Fayetteville, which will be the other Carolina League city. And it's really exciting for fans in the Carolina League who will get to see, you know, prospects from two other organizations come into their ballparks and all that all that fun kind of stuff. But obviously, uh, you know, very sad for especially Bakersfield with the way that that team had been around, a founding member of the California League um, dating back 75 years and high desert as well. Um, definitely some some bittersweet moments. And, you know, we also saw a crazy story like the Hartford Yard Goats who spent the entire season away from home. We thought initially that Hartford was going to open that ballpark, Dunkin' Donuts Park, back in May. That was the initial. Actually, I think April was the initial projection, the end of April. And then that situation continued to get a little bit more muddied as the season went along. By the end of the year, the Yard Goats were on the road for 161 days, I think was the final tally. And that is nuts and the yard goats were a very good team throughout so that's one of those crazy stories that i think will stand out when we look back at 2016 but um yeah it really felt like uh another one of those watershed seasons the last two have been pretty big that way which has been cool yeah definitely and um i don't know i when i first thought of this topic i thought it would kind of flow out of me and it would just be so easy to kind of categorize categorize this year and i don't know maybe we're still a little too close to it um, you know, maybe something big is still yet to come that that will define how we remember this. Maybe we'll remember it as the year the uh, set. We'll get back to this later with Ben, but maybe we remember it as the time uh, the Pizza Rats took over minor league baseball. The but, Pizza uh, Rats. Yeah, but uh, yeah, no, there's still there's still enough baseball left that you know we could have another storyline or two that helps define uh, how how we look back at this season for sure. Well, you know what it's going to end up being? It's going to end up being the year of Tebow. Yeah. That's what it'll be by the end of 2016, Sam. That's what it'll yeah. be. When he goes out and hits 900 in instructs and proves us all wrong. Oh, wait, that's right. He's not going to all of instructs because he has a prior broadcasting commitment. Um, Here's the story. We said we talk about it as a foul ball today. One Timothy Richard Tebow, a former player on the gridiron in the sport of American football, has signed a minor league contract with the New York Metropolitans and will report at least part-time to instructional league, um, which I think could be encapsulated uh, a lot of what I would imagine many minor league players are feeling. Many minor league players are very excited about this move, but a lot of them probably feel somewhat the same way as Daniel Palka, who tweeted this from the Minnesota Twins system. Bob Nightingale of USA Today tweeted, quote, Sandy Alderson acknowledges that Tim Tebow won't be available every day in instructional league because of Tebow's ESPN broadcasting job, which Daniel Palker retweeted and said, quote, ah, the old getting out of instructs to broadcast trick. We've all been there at some point or another. Tricky. I think that's probably the feeling for a lot of guys. Um, I have not changed my opinion, as I said last uh, two weeks ago when we first discussed this. If Tim Tebow ever gets a serious look in a full season league, I will be shocked does not even encapsulate the emotion to me. Yeah. Um, you know, will he make it to Brooklyn? Will it be kind of a, a PR stunt to sell tickets, to sell jerseys? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe he'll get a, a nod in short season ball. I can't conceive of a, a GCL stint or something like that. I think if they're going to send him out there, they're going to want to send him to a minor league market where you can merchandise and sell tickets and that kind of stuff. I mean, the business is part of the name of the game. But um, I don't think we'll ever see him with the – the Columbia Fireflies, the St. Louis Mets, or certainly not the Binghamton Stud Muffins. <laughs> well, that that's <laughs> to be determined whether it's the actual Binghamton Stud Muffins. But uh, no, I mean we're we're in agreement on this. Anybody who listened a couple weeks ago knows this. Um, you know, it, the part of 
the conspiracy in me. You mentioned the business aspect. The Mets own uh, the Brooklyn Cyclones. Right. So they actually do get we we've, we've talked in the past about, you know, that's not how the miners work. You right. don't sign right. a guy to sell tickets in class A because you don't get that money. Well, the Mets actually would get that money at from their short season affiliate. Right. Also, I think they own the St. Lucie Mets. Um, so if, even if you got pushed too high, a which again, neither of us is predicting, but if you did get, p- uh, pushed there, that would be a great sell, you know, in a typically tough to sell market. So th- th- it's intriguing that he picked the Mets. There were rumors that he was going to go to the Braves again. The conspiracy theory in me knows that the Braves own a lot of their, uh, minor league affiliates. Right. There's a reason why it's the Gwinnett Braves, the Mississippi Braves, Rome Braves, um, so it, it's interesting that those were the two teams to look at him. Uh, but as you mentioned, according to, I think it was Colin Coward. So, yeah, save your thoughts on Colin Coward for a moment. But uh, I believe it was the takes. Him, the takes were scorching. Yeah. Who reported that, you know, T- Tim Tebow had 10 offers from 10 major league organizations and the Mets were the only one to tell him, it's okay if you miss part of Instructs for uh, this SEC network commitment, which is fascinating that he took it for that reason. And yeah. then, uh, the other side of his mouth said, you know, I'm, I'm all committed. I'm all to this. serious I'm, about this. I'm fully in it. Right. And if I'm here, I'm, I'm fully committed. And right. then you're going to leave for this other thing. So I'm fully on board with all the minor leaguers. They have my support in this, this idea that, you know, you, it, you can't sign a guy, tell him he's going to be one of the guys trying to make it through the system and then give him special treatment. Um, exactly. That just feels wrong. A lot of these guys, you know, have other jobs too, that they would like to make money on and they can't skip instructs cause they're yeah. fighting for their dream. Um, so I, I would like to see Tim Tebow take that same, you know, route that those guys are. We'll see what happens come the spring. Uh, you know, that's going to be its own sideshow. I'm definitely going forward <laughs> this year for spring training. I was going anyways, I was probably going to Port St. Lucie anyways. Now I'm for sure going, hopefully a little after the circus dies down. Um, I don't know if I'll be able to break any news at that point, but it'll just be interesting to see with my own two eyes. Uh, so, yeah, the the Tim Tebow and the Mets system story begins now. And uh, content for all. That's, that's all I have to say. It's happening. It's all happening. By the way, just in case you're wondering, uh, you too, if you so choose – can head to uh, Tim Tebow's official website where you can purchase autographed baseballs and autographed bats for $125 and $175 a piece, just in case you were wondering if Tim Tebow was making some money off of this deal, which I was appears shocking. by TimTebow.com this week because I would change my stance. <laughs> it appears surprisingly that he's looking to cash in on this as well. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm on board. Uh, if it was a serious attempt... Uh, I don't think you would take your your SEC network broadcasting job for this year. If it's a serious attempt at, no, I want to do this. I'm going to go full bore. When Michael Jordan tried to play with the the Birmingham Barons and later on in the Arizona Fall League, he didn't say, okay, yeah, sure, but I also want to go play in you know the the World Championships or whatever would have been that summer uh, on the basketball side. It just didn't work that way. And uh, oh, by the way, Michael Jordan over the course of his uh, his double A career, in which he played for 127 games with Double A Birmingham back in 1994, batted 202 with three homers, 51 RBIs, and 30 stolen bases. Not an easy thing to do. Like we said a couple of weeks ago, 
Not even a shot at Tim Tebow. It's just not an easy thing to do to play professional baseball. So, uh, you know, keep it in mind. Although, I don't know, man. The votes on uh, on social media are coming in. And according to, uh, according to our site right now, of the early voters, 43 votes have been cast in this democracy that we call America. Oh, now we're up to 46 votes. And 50% of those people say Tim Tebow will make the major leagues. So the, the no, takes it's on the internet. So the it's takes fun. are scorching. It's on the internet, so it's got to be true. <laughs> All right, that'll do it. I promise you, the next time we talk about Tim Tebow, it will be because he made actual news playing the game of baseball. So, in other words, I don't think we'll be talking about Tim Tebow again. Um, moving on. Oh. Number oh. two. This week, our second segment this week, Dylan Carlson of the St. Louis Cardinals organization, a guy who has gone to the Gulf Coast League and a guy who has succeeded quite well in the Gulf Coast League and soon will have a GCL ring to show for himself. Dylan Carlson, the 33rd overall selection in the first round of the draft in 2016, first round selection of the St. Louis Cardinals, joins the show to talk GCL, debut pro season, and a whole lot more coming up next. Just uh, really hours removed, uh, I would imagine it seems like, from a, winning a GCL title in his debut season, rookie-level uh, Gulf Coast League action in the St. Louis Cardinals organization. Cardinals prospect in the 33rd overall selection in the 2016 Major League Baseball first-year player draft. Dylan Carlson joins the show. Dylan, uh, I would think a, uh, a pretty wild last couple of days. What's the celebration been like for you guys? Uh, definitely. It's been uh, real exciting. This, this team's really special, and... Uh come out and win the championship in my first year with this game. Something I'll always remember. The you know, we uh we uh put in a lot of hard work and for it to pay off the way it did, it's very exciting. Not only did the GCL Cardinals come away with a title, but one step up the ladder in the Cardinals organization, Johnson City also won a championship in the Appy League, so a good start to the minor league postseason in the St. Louis Cardinals organization. But it's been a good start all around for Dylan Carlson, who, like I said, was taken in the first round, uh, 33rd overall selection of the uh, of the draft back in June. Dylan's still just 17 years old, taken out of high school in Elk Grove, California. Um, and Dylan, I mean, to get from where you were, you know, this time three, four months ago to this stage now, professional baseball, just kind of give us the even though you're in the immediate aftermath of the the close of your first season, you know how do you look back in the last few months ever since you were you were taken in the draft and and got to finally throw on a pro uniform for the first time? Oh, definitely. I think I've uh, made some serious progress working with our coaching staff. You know, they show us a lot of good things each and every day. Learn new things about your game, and uh, you know they really uh, help choose how to play the game, respect the game. You know, I'm very grateful for this opportunity and this great organization to play in. I'm having a blast. And, Dylan, what's the biggest thing you've kind of learned? Um, or what's the biggest thing that's been surprising to you about pro ball so far? Something that, you know, you didn't expect coming into this process back in June? Uh, you know, something I really didn't expect was uh, <clears throat> how much of a grind the season is. You know, everyone tells you, you know, it's, it's a tough season. You know, it's long. And, you know, I not even playing a full season, you know, you uh, understand, you know, just getting used to playing each and every day, what they uh, what they're talking about. And, you know, the coaches, uh, you know, they help you. And it's, uh, you know, I'd say that's the biggest difference, you know, just playing every day now opposed to before where you would play a few times a week. 
And in terms of skills and tools and all that kind of thing, how do you think you've grown the most, at least? I mean, as you said, you haven't even gotten a first full season yet, a first off season yet to kind of prepare for pro ball. But how much of a different ball player are you now uh, than you were when you went through the draft? Oh, I'd say I've uh, improved a lot, you know, working with these coaches. They've uh, definitely done some things with my approach that, um, you know, have really uh, helped my game, you know, situational hitting, stuff like that. Uh, you know, just trusting, just trusting what they're saying. It's, you know, you start seeing things change and it's good to see. Dylan, when you step in onto a, a professional field for the first time, you know, one of the things we talk about with guys in rookie ball is it's not just the quality of the competition that gets, you know, vastly improved over what you saw in high school, but the quality of your teammates is the same way. And and that's a really cool facet for a lot of guys getting into pro balls. You get to be around guys who every day kind of force you to up your game a little bit. I mean, who have been some of the guys that you've really learned from or bonded with or some of the guys that you've shared this GCL experience with who you know, you know, you're going to be able to take some steps up the ladder with and, and get to continue to grow as ball players. Oh, I mean, there's definitely a lot of good players. I mean, everyone out here is very talented, and but some guys I definitely have uh, learned some things from, some college guys. You know, our first baseman, Stephen Trosclair, a uh, talented hitter out of uh, Louisiana, Lafayette, you know, he's uh, he uh, kind of took me under his wing a little bit, you know, talked a lot of baseball with me. You know, he's, uh, you know, I'm very grateful for what he's done. And, you know, of course, Delvin, you know, he's uh, Delvin Perez, our talented shortstop, you know, a big part of our uh, success. You know, playing with him, you know, definitely elevates your game, makes you want to play better. A lot of fun to be around, a lot of energy. This this team was just awesome, though. I mean, everyone on the team contributed. The coaches did a great job, and you know, definitely, as you said, the skills, the skill of your teammates just vastly improves. And you know, playing with each and every one of those guys makes you want to elevate your game. One of the things that's kind of it's almost more of a football cliche, but it it plays in baseball as well. Um, you know, wanting to up your game, uh, you're well familiar with that as the the son of a coach. Um, your father, mm-hmm. your head, your uh, your head coach at Elk Grove High School in California, and that's one of the things that I know a lot of scouts said coming into the draft. Um, and being a younger guy coming into the draft, still just 17, people raved about your mental makeup and the way you understood baseball. I mean, what what is that baseball IQ wise? What do you think you have from playing under your father, getting a chance to learn? Uh, you know, for your entire life, but especially the last four years in school that maybe you would not have had, had you not played under him at a high school level? Well, I mean, definitely the way uh, he teaches his uh, players how to respect the game, play the game the right way. You know, that's something that I've learned a bunch from him, not only him, all the other coaches at my high school and also the past, uh, the previous players I played with there. You know, we've had a lot of guys drafted out of that high school can't thank those guys enough for taking me under their wing, showing me, you know, what it takes and, you know, playing for my father, you know, great coach out there. He's, uh, he's taught me a lot of things, not only as a player, but as a person, I'm very grateful for that. And, you know, it's just all about playing the game the right way, respecting the game. And, you know, that's how you get it done. And Dylan, t- talk a little bit about the draft process for you. Um, you know, going into the draft, 
uh, you know, looking around in some various rankings. I don't think MLB.com had you in the, their rankings, but Baseball America had you at 92. You ended up going in the 30s to the Cardinals. Uh, you know, at what point did it seem like the Cardinals were interested you in you? And, um, you know, were you even surprised at yourself that to hear your name that high and to get that, that call in the 30s? Or did you expect that to be coming all along? Uh, going into the day, I, I really didn't know what to expect. So, I mean, I was obviously very grateful. I was taken at 33. You know, it's amazing opportunity. You know, draft day was something I'll always remember. You know, I felt uh, I put in a lot of hard work, and, uh, you know, just for it to pay off that way, it was very exciting. And, you know, just was ready to come play baseball. That's pretty much how I looked at it. Now getting into the off season, first professional off season, uh, which I would imagine is something that you have been excited for for a while. And also probably for these last few days, you haven't really wanted the season to end with this dream finish of the year for you guys, but you're there now you get to go home. Um, and we, we asked this question of guys, especially in your first season, what's the thing you're most excited about, uh, for the off season to get home, you know, restaurants. Uh, we had uh, a couple of weeks ago, Mickey Moniak, the first overall pick in the draft said his father's cooking was the thing he was most excited to get home and get back to. What's the thing you're most looking forward to get back to when you get home to california oh definitely seeing my family uh you know haven't seen my little brother in since since the draft so that's something i'm really looking forward to seeing he's he's also a talented ball player so i'll be uh looking forward to working out with him a little bit seeing what he's been working on what he's been up to you know also getting back to mom's cooking you know also, in and out, you don't got that on the East Coast. That's something. <laughs> that's something. I'll be that's what we're always to. fishing for. <laughs> that really is. That's the answer we're Definitely. always looking for from the California Definitely. guys: either Mexican food or in and out. Definitely. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I. I mean, that's something the East Coast is just missing right there. Well, while we're talking about California going back home, um, it seems like it was kind of a big year in the draft for for Sacramento area guys. You know, you go. 33 Matt Manning I think goes to nine with the mm-hmm. Tigers um just kind of talk about that what what it was like to be part of that for you know what seemed like a special year for high schoolers in that region oh it was it was amazing I mean growing up with Matt playing uh little league and travel baseball with them you know both of us going in the first round that was pretty special I mean being childhood friends and all that you know it's something you you always dream of and for it to actually happen it's surreal and finally just uh you know we, we were talking a little bit about the off season, but you're going into instructs um you know what have the cardinals kind of told you to focus on during that process what are you looking forward to most about it uh just going back you know you, you have to go, go back to florida for that but what what have they told you about instructional league I, I don't think a lot of fans know what goes into that and uh yeah what are you looking forward to most about that oh i'm definitely looking forward to you know, playing with more, meeting more players in the organization. That's something I'm looking forward to. And of course, working with all the instructors that will be out here. That's, that's something I'll be looking forward to as well. It's, it's a great opportunity for me. Just makes you a better player. You know, keep working at your game. 
Dylan Carlson, the 33rd overall selection in the 2016 Major League Baseball first-year player draft switch hitting outfielder in the St. Louis Cardinals system this year, slash 251, 313, 404 in the rookie-level GCL at 17 years old. So no matter what you were doing at 17, Dylan is likely much better than whatever you were. Uh, Dylan, congratulations on a, a hell of a start to the career, and congratulations on the GCL title. So cool, and thanks a ton for making some time for us, and uh, enjoy the, the start to the offseason and instructs, and I'm sure we'll be catching up with you down the road. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, with the regular season behind us for a lot of teams and uh, postseason stuff up and in the works, we've got big news already as Benjamin Hill joins the show for uh, for this week's first non-regular season edition. Hey, Ben. Hey, have we, we have we ever been regular? No. <laughs> no, it's true. We don't We're regular enough. in that it happens each week. But we don't need enough prunes. Yeah. yeah, well, we're going to stay regular in that it happens every week, oh, but I don't God. think we've uh, really been too regular uh, with our topics of conversation, and that will continue off-season, on-season, whatever you want to call it. We always have stuff to talk about. You know why I like you, Harry? Because you're a regular guy. Um, <laughs> to the five of you who laughed at that, we would we would be best friends. Uh, hey, Ben, welcome in. New team names uh, are going to be coming fast and furious this off-season. And we have the latest batch of finalists for the Staten Island Yankees, who entering the 2017 season, the New York Penn League affiliate of the uh, New York Yankees, will no longer be known by the same moniker as their parent club. Five names announced, and let's get right to it. Much like we saw in Lynchburg, where the Hillcats have chosen to remain the Hillcats, and in Binghamton, where the name is still to be announced uh, five names and uh, some crazy ones in here. Let's get it started. The Staten Island Bridge Trolls, Heroes, Killer Bees, Pizza Rats, and Rock Pigeons. Not Rock Lobsters, Rock Pigeons. Uh, ben, your thoughts on these five for the Staten Island, formerly known, the artist formerly known as the Yankees? Well, it's funny. They're in the playoffs right now. So they're playing uh, tonight in State College, and that could be their last game ever as the Staten Island Yankees, because in 2017, they will be one of these five things, the five names you just mentioned. Um, I feel at this point, for the last couple years, you know, the, these name the team finalists get announced. We all say, this is ridiculous. How can it get more ridiculous? Um, so I'm kind of immune to that at this point. I think they're they're always going to be wacky and irreverent. And uh, that's clearly the formula right, now, formula right now and what seems to be working in the industry. So it is a strange mix of, mix of uh, choices, but is it any more or less strange than we've seen in New Orleans or that we're seeing in uh, Lynchburg or Binghamton or the last couple of years when you have Akron or Pensacola or Lehigh Valley going back? This is just the way things are. So we got Bridge Trolls, Heroes, Killer Bees, Pizza Rats, and Rock Pigeons in Staten Island. Me, personally, I like the Killer Bees the best because it's a Wu-Tang Clan reference, Wu-Tang being from Staten Island. And, uh, you know, I just hear Killer Bees, and I think, Wu-Tang Killer Bees on the swarm, you know. Like, you got to oh, diversify geez. your profile. Uh, what's that? you got to diversify your profile. Yeah. Wu-Tang <laughs> Financial. Um, yeah, I actually did not know that, that Wu-Tang was from Staten Island. How did you not know that, Tyler? Eh, I'm not, uh, what's the word? Cool. With it, <laughs> I'm not with it. I'm in no way cool or up on things that cool people would know. Yeah, I mean, they were cool 20 years ago as well. I mean, this is not a new phenomenon. But retro knowledge is cool now, you know. Right. <laughs> and it was cool then when it was current knowledge. Right, exactly. Anyway, 
Um, yeah, that's a, that's a, uh, a Wu Tang reference. Pizza Rats does have the association with the viral video of a pizza of a rat carrying a pizza on the subway yeah. stairs. Um, you know, the team doesn't reference the viral video specifically in their press release, and they just say, uh, you know, Pizza Rats are tenacious, enterprising, and know where to find the best food in the city. You know, just like Staten Islanders. You know, they're tenacious and enterprising and know where to find the best food. Uh, heroes, you know, could also be a covert food reference, but that's it, what I was thinking. Oh, well, that's true. Well, I talked to uh, Staten Island President uh, Will Smith today, and uh, he mentioned that, of course, the Fresh Prince of Staten Island, the Fresh yes, Prince yes. of Staten Island. Yes, um, he mentioned that. Yes, obviously, the hero's name first and foremost, uh, you know, as the team puts it, honors the civil servants and military personnel of Staten Island, the NYPD and FDNY. You have a lot of representatives in the borough, you know, who have worked for those entities. Um, a lot of public service uh, traditions in Staten Island, but and of course the the ballpark, the September 11th memorial for Staten Island is located right next to uh, Richmond County Bank ballpark in Staten Island as well, which overlooks downtown Manhattan. Right. So there's very much that uh, that that culture and those associations with Staten Island, and yes, as you said, Tyler, especially where the ballpark is located uh, with the skyline views of Lower Manhattan. But in talking to Will, he said he didn't say anything specific, but he said. You know, read between the lines. You know, we could also have other fun associations with uh, Staten Island heroes. And, uh, you know, Staten Island has four bridges, you know, connecting Staten Island with places that aren't Staten Island. So we have bridge trolls. He said that, you know, fans had uh, several fans had suggested bridge bridges for a name. So the team kind of said, all right, we like where you're going with that, but we're going to you know, try to make it something that would have a mascot that would have more uh, visual elements and would be more memorable. So they went with bridge trolls. Um, you know, I like what Will Smith is doing and what the current front office staff is doing in Staten Island. I've been going to games there. I think the first game I went to in Staten Island was 2006. And uh, quite honestly, just year after year, there was just never really a New York energy at that stadium. Uh, right from getting off the ferry and walking to the ballpark, you never felt a real sense of energy. And I know a lot of people are saying, how could you abandon the Yankees name? How could you get rid of the Yankees? You know, we're Staten Island and we're the Yankees and this is New York City and blah, blah, blah. But look at the attendance figures over the last decade plus. Was this a it was the city coming out to support the Staten Island Yankees? They weren't. Um, and I think they need an infusion of energy. They need to continue doing promotions like they've been doing over the last several years. I think they do need leaders like Will Smith to come in and give it a uh, a more modern day and uh, rejuvenated uh, outlook, especially with uh, this huge Ferris wheel being built right outside the ballpark and a lot of development happening around the ballpark. A lot more people are going to be coming to this area of Staten Island right off the ferry terminal. And you need a team that really captures that energy, not just in Staten Island, but out of uh, New York City as well. And just kind of looking over some of these names, do you think that there's a possibility that some of them just get so crazy that they are trying to push, you know, like, let's say, I think Heroes, Killer Bees, those are both legitimate. They're both connections, that whole thing. And then you throw in Bridge Strolls, Pizza Rats, Rock Pigeons, just to fill it out with something crazy, trying to make Heroes look good by comparison. Do you ever think they try to game the system at all that way? Or do you think these are all, like, they would be happy to go forward with any of the five? No, I can't speak for Staten Island, but I've retired from handicapping these name the team contests <laughs> because even with talking to a lot of people in baseball on and off the record, um, the formula is similar, but the specifics are changed. Some teams go into announcing the finalists already knowing exactly what they're going to do. Some really you know, take a really specific vote. Some kind of gauge the feedback and go from there. I don't know what specifically what Staten Island is doing, but – 
I think after the Chihuahua, El Paso Chihuahuas became the Chihuahuas a couple of years back, which even now doesn't seem like a crazy name. It doesn't seem that bad. But at, all, at that whatever. time, I said, wow, they went with Chihuahuas. I'm kind of done saying there's a certain name that, no, they definitely won't do that one. Because as soon as you say that, that's the one that's picked. And then something crazier comes along and you say, no, they won't do that. And then that's the one that's picked. Um, this is just where we are right now. And uh, it gets people talking. We're talking about it now. The internet was buzzing about it today. And as I made the point on Twitter, Twitter generally loves all the wackiness and irreverent uh, names, you know, like especially Pizza Rats. Twitter was all over Pizza Rats today. But if you go to Facebook and you go to, you know, uh, my article on on the Minor League Facebook, or especially if you go to Staten Island's page on Facebook, then you have the typical worst idea ever, you know, quit your job, fire the marketing team, embarrassment. And uh, it's a a real divide of uh, the cross-section of fans versus the why change anything um, camp, which is often represented on Facebook, to Twitter's like, yes, do the craziest thing possible. And I think like most things in life, you have to meet in the middle. You have to find a balance. And no matter what you choose, you have to own it. And I think one thing the teams have been very good at doing or else this wouldn't keep happening is owning it. So, you know, the Flying Squirrels might seem like a crazy name, but then when you go to the ballpark and you see how it's branded throughout the ballpark and you see what Richmond and their front office does with it, all of a yeah. sudden front off, uh, Flying Squirrels doesn't seem crazy because it's part of a much larger experience. So every time we see these new team names and people going crazy and people saying this is an embarrassment, they don't understand that it's not just a name. It's, it's the way that the team will be branded, obviously with the logo and the merchandise, but also throughout the stadium and the different areas in the stadium, the mascots, and a whole new identity that um, I think if it's done right becomes all-encompassing and really brings over most of the haters and the people who have a problem initially back to the side of saying, you know what, this wasn't that bad because I didn't understand how this industry works in the modern or in the 21st century because what I had was a reference that's 15 years old, that's 20 years old. So I think once you get to know how these things work, you see it in action, there's no fault in not liking it now, but I'd say to people just keep an open mind till you see it in practice and probably you will be impressed. All right, well, let me put it a different way then. Um, just kind of in a vacuum, let's say you were picking, I know you said you like the killer bees, um, but not to pick to say like, which one are they going to take? But if you had to pick one, which has the most potential, you know, to be a great brand, a great merchandising opportunity, a great way to get people finally going out to Staten Island, you know, of these five choices, which one do you think has the most potential then? I think it's tough because there's so many elements and it's what you do with it. And uh, I think it's the way the front office will collaborate and decide on how to push out all all the elements of what they do choose. You know, I said I like Killer Bees the best. Part of it is nostalgic. Part of it is my own uh, Wu-Tang Clan uh, liking them through many years going back to when I was in high school and I'm not in high school anymore. Um, But looking at the five, it's tough to say. I I think Heroes is the safest choice, obviously. And uh, while the Staten Island Yankees or the – team currently known as the Yankees are marketing to all of New York. Staten Island is their base and maybe a more conservative choice, uh, you know, would benefit them. But if you really want to make an impact throughout the city and the country, uh, maybe just go for broke and go with pizza rats, uh, go with bridge trolls. Um, I really think it depends on uh, what direction you want to take. And it's tough to say what's right or wrong. It's just like anything else. It's what you do with it once you got it and once you've uh, selected it. Yeah, we've really, we've discussed this uh, at length at times in the past, but the the two case studies really are uh, the, the New Hampshire Fisher Cats, who initially on their identity unveiled their identity as the New Hampshire Primaries, and then caved to mass 
uh, controversy over that and changed the name, not wanting to live out that um, that really tough, contentious period where you try to have the fans buy into it. And then on the other side, like Ben said, you know, the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs are really one of the teams that sort of set the standard. The Richmond Flying Squirrels the same way of embracing it, running with it, and making it your own. Um, one thing that I find interesting, Ben did a story earlier this year on new minor league ballparks, and in 2017, we won't have any new ballparks, as we've learned, uh, it's specifically minor league facilities, but what we will have... Well, we will have uh, Hartford... Oh, true. That's correct. <laughs> yeah, I guess we didn't even. Yeah, we didn't even update that. That's true. So Hartford officially, the team starts in 2016, but the ballpark in 2017. Good point. Um, but as of uh, other than Hartford, we won't have any new ballparks, but we will have new team names for New Orleans, Binghamton, Lynchburg. will go back to the Hillcats, so that nothing changed in there. But they did have the name the team uh, vote. Staten Island, Kinston, which also has a name the team contest, and presumably Fayetteville as well, uh, depending on what goes on with that situation. If the new Carolina League club, so there will be a lot of new identities. So uh, minor league logo and uniform nerds, like you know, some of us on this podcast, um, get excited because there's a lot coming out next season. Yeah, it's going to be a busy off season, and uh, hey, more power to it. As long as I have something to do. I'm happy. Ben gets to be the guy who covers it all. Um, speaking of one of those teams that actually we can add this onto the pile, we'll have a new identity. The Brevard County Manatees are no more, have wrapped up their 2016 season uh, as one of the Florida State League's clubs that in 2017 will be in a new spot in Kissimmee, Florida, with a new facility being built, their spring training facility, which will house Brevard County. And, um, you know, the Florida State League is often a league that – we don't get to touch on a lot because it's just such a different dynamic. And we've talked about that before as to why that is with, you know, some bigger markets and a whole lot of options for other things to do in Florida state league markets, but a lot of really successful teams there in Brevard County, one of those teams that'll be shifting gears and locales for 2017. Yeah. Um, as you said, they're moving, um, to, uh, I always want to say Kissimmee, but Kissimmee, they're moving to Kissimmee uh, to where the Astros formerly had a spring training facility, and now they're just going to play in that facility. Uh, that 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 stadium hosted the Kissimmee Cobras about 20 years ago, so it's a return of minor league baseball to that area. And interestingly, uh, they're going to be taking just the name Florida in the team name, even though they're playing obviously in a very distinct locale. They're just going to be the Florida, what have you. Um, but Brevard County is is no longer, and um, I think. The fact that they do play in a spring training facility and the Florida State League um, doesn't get as much publicity. And to be quite honest, the Brevard County team didn't really do much to publicize or really, you know, make a big story out of their last days. Uh, you know, we spent so much time, especially last week, talking about the end of High Desert, the end of Bakersfield. That's kind of over. It's been easy to overlook. Uh, no more Brevard County manatees. Um, Manatees, they are going to uh, Kissimmee. So it, there's just so much change going on in minor league baseball right now. And you just had a uh, blog post, a guest blog post this week, um, you know, about saying goodbye to Brevard County and and what that experience was like. What did you kind of get from that experience? Kind of getting a firsthand account of somebody talking about what it's like to lose a team like that uh, from the fan side. Well, this is a guy, Mike, Michael Lortz, who's been reading my stuff for a number of years and who I've met. He was my designated eater when I went to Dunedin in 2015. And, uh, you know, he got in touch and said, Hey, I've been going to, uh, Manatee's games for pretty much the entirety of the franchise existence over two decades. And I'm going to miss it. And would you mind if I wrote something about it? And I said, sure. And one of the reasons I said, sure was one, you know, guest posts are good because it means I don't have to write something. And two, um, I do feel that Brevard County just sort of 
disappeared without much fanfare, without much people paying attention to it. So to have someone highlight that, I, th- I thought was a good thing. So uh, he he called it farewell to the sea cows and R.I.P. Brevard County manatees who are now moving to uh, Kissimmee. And uh, we'll start a new era there. But you can check out that post uh, on my blog, which is, of course, Ben's Biz blog. Ben'sBiz.mlblogs.com. A lot more coming to that as well. And um, Ben's got content from his road trips, which is still going up on the site and will be going up on the blog for quite some time. And one of my favorite stories of the year from Ben is about Princess, the ballpark dog in Reno, a 10-year-old pit bull who was adopted by the Reno Aces. And there are a lot of teams that have you know, front office dogs, dogs on the field, dogs that pick up the bats, dogs that run baseballs to the umpires, that kind of stuff. But Princess is such a cool story because she came on, you know, at an advanced age in a dog's life. And uh, she, this is really one of the more, you know, kind of loving and heartwarming stories of the season. Yeah, I mean, I totally fell in love with this dog, Princess, who I met in Reno when I was there last month. But uh, basically, like a lot of teams, um, the Aces partner with the local uh, chapter, the Humane Society, and they have the Humane Society bring dogs to the ballpark that are that are adoptable. And fans right there on the concourse can see, you know, the, the dogs that are adoptable and 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 start to go through the process. So um, the Humane Society said we have this pit bull, Princess, um, you know, ten years old or nine years old at the time, and uh, the team said, yeah, you know, bring her out and. Um, no one was interested in her. And then the team said, you know, we're going to foster foster her and we're going to, through our social media, we're going to, you know, find someone to take Princess. She's such a sweet dog. And uh, months and months went by and, and no one adopted Princess. Meanwhile, she's living, at, you know, basically she's staying with various front office members. She's at the ballpark every day. And uh, the team fell in love with her. And they wanted to also send a message saying that, you know, a pit bull, People don't adopt pit bulls because that they are associated with being a vicious breed, and they can be if they are bred with those tendencies. But they're super sweet dogs. They have the, they have the capacity to be that. So Princess is super sweet. No one will adopt her because she's a pit bull. So the team, um, specifically Andrew Doherty, uh, the executive vice president now at the team, he went ahead and adopted Princess, and now Princess is at the ballpark every day. Uh, you know, she stays with uh, Doherty in, in his office. Uh, Princess comes to the concourse during games sometimes, mingles with the fans. Everybody knows her. The players know her. They sell Princess plush dolls uh, at the ballpark. Um, so it's a great story, and, and really on a broader level, it's a great story because they are in their own way. The Aces are saying, you know, consider a pit bull. Don't just write them off as an entire type of dog because of the negative associate, uh, stereotypes. And uh, I think for a, a team like the Aces in a, in a large market, um, and with their social media and with the princess merchandise, spreading that message is, is, is really cool. And it is a very heartwarming story. And I got to meet princess when I was there and she's just an absolute sweetheart. Anyone who meets her would fall in love with her. What I think is really cool too is, uh, and you may notice noted this in, I know you did note it in the story, but, um, the aces also sell princess plush dolls at the, uh, store at the ballpark. And for $20, you can get the plush doll, but $5 of that goes to the Nevada, the Nevada humane society. And that's one of the threads throughout this is um Andrew Doherty talks a lot about what a pro dog market Reno is and that's really neat too because you get to not only make a difference in one dog's life but this dog continues to help out other dogs and other stories of other princesses maybe they're not going to end up being ballpark dogs but hopefully they'll find a, a good home anyway yeah absolutely I mean even me on a personal level I'm not in a position to adopt a dog right now living in an apartment in New York City but it really got me thinking like, wow, this pit bull is a sweet and adorable creature. And that if I should ever be in a position to adopt a dog, I might now consider that when I had, wouldn't have before because I met princess. And, uh, 
I hope other people reading the story might start to think of that. And just the example that Princess and the Aces set in the ballpark every day is a good way to say, like, hey, you know, pit bulls uh, should be considered as individuals and not, uh, you know, all lumped together as, uh, you know, as, as vicious dogs, which the, they clearly are, are all not. The quote of the story, by the way, is uh, Doherty said, quote, I don't get it because I could be robbed blind and she'd lick the robber on his way out. <laughs> <laughs> that is an awesome dog. Is that wait? Is that why she was licking Ben? Probably. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, I, was, I was the robber. <laughs> I was the robber on his way out. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> Before you go, just preview what you've got coming up the rest of the week. I know you got a coming a story coming up Friday that'll be up by the time this podcast is out. So what do you got coming up for that? Yeah, well, I got two more stories for MILB.com based on my road trips, and then I'll retire that element of my content. I have a a dispatch from Visalia coming up tomorrow, Friday. And then I think one more on Tuesday uh, from Stockton. Meanwhile, on the blog, I have gone all the way back in time to late June and uh, really filling in the blanks uh, with my Appalachian League visit. Uh, so I will be you know, providing full recaps of all those stops. You know, I've already blogged about it in the past and done feature stories, but I like to go back on the blog and really provide a, a full uh, account of, of everything that went on during my time at the ballparks. And um, so I'm going to be... You know, covering off-season stuff like name the team contests and new logos will come by sh- uh, soon and all that kind of stuff. But on the blog, I will uh, certainly be going back and covering a lot of stuff from this season and from my travels. Still a little bit more to come about that on MILB.com. And uh, it doesn't feel like the off-season yet. There's still I know. Going on. It's crazy. It's crazy, man. Story up as well about Eric the Peanut Guy, the Tri-City Dust Devils. That's up on the site right now. And um, Ben... Thanks. Thanks, man. This is, uh, yeah, it's so weird that we're at this stage of the season where we're previewing off-season content, but um, finishing with a flourish. You're, you're ending, it's like a good BP round. You're ending on a good one, a good several. Yeah, I'd like to think so. I'd like to think so, but um, I got nothing. It's <laughs> <laughs> our perfect finish, Ben. We'll talk to you next week. All right, sounds good. Final segment of the 75th episode of the Show Before the Show podcast. Man, oh man. 75 episodes. 75. So we, we record, we do an hour each show. And I us, it usually takes me between an hour and a half and two hours to finally produce everything. So let's say, let's just cut it down and we'll go two hours for recording and production time for each show. So that's 150 hours divided by... 24. Um, I have math spent... on the podcast. <laughs> that's that's what the people come for, isn't it? Is that yes. not what it is? I have spent six and a quarter days of my life recording <laughs> this podcast. That's amazing. And it's been so worth it because we get yes. to talk to you guys every week about uh, all the latest and greatest in minor league baseball. Um, and before we get out of here, Milb TV, the hottest time of the year to catch all the action on Milb TV with minor league playoffs underway and rolling across the country. Um, Sam, what do you keep an eye on this weekend? Yeah, so when we're talking about these games, you have to remember by the time you might be listening to this podcast, uh, some of these series might be over. Uh, you know, a lot of them are already one game in. Some of them are even more so. Um, so I'm going to just tell you about the Tacoma El Paso series. I don't think that's really one we've talked about at all this this episode so far. Tacoma took a one nothing lead uh, with a 6-5 win in 12 innings on Wednesday. It's a best of five series, so you're guaranteed at least one another game, one other game on Friday. 
uh, could go Saturday, Sunday as well. The reason why I picked that is actually for El Paso, the team that is down one nothing right now. Uh, that roster that they have, let me just read you off their top five hitters. Manuel Margot, Carlos Asuaje, Hunter Renfro, Austin Hedges, and Patrick Kivlihan, all five of which are either currently or were at one time very legit prospects. Uh, Hedges and Kivlihan have major league experience this year. Uh, we remember Hedges went on that incredibly hot run at one point. Uh, Renfro, I believe, was named PCL MVP. Uh, and Margot is just another really, really good outfielder. So th- a lot to like in that El Paso lineup. Uh, facing a deficit right now, they could come back even up that series tonight going into Friday. Uh, but any one of those Tacoma-El Paso games, you're, you're going to see those five guys uh, and throw in Dan Vogelback. Uh, Daniel Robertson over there in the Tacoma lineup, some pretty good guys over there as well. Uh, Stefan Romero. Yeah, there's a lot to like in that series. I think if it goes all five, you know, we'd be the winners. Uh, But no matter how long it goes, you can catch all the games on Mild TV. Uh, So that's my pick of the week. What about for you, Tyler? Yeah, make sure you check the site, check the scoreboard, and check the playoffs page as to whether or not uh, the series that we preview are still in progress. But, man, I'm not not getting off of these uh, these Cinderella Gwinnett Braves who, uh, as Sam put it early on in the show today, continue to rage against the dying of the light. Only so many teams can win a division at 13 games under 500. And you know what? When you get into the playoffs, just go win the damn thing. That's what people <laughs> on that bus are saying. So uh, the Gwinnett Braves, a 1-0 series lead over the Columbus Clippers. I got to watch that. I got to watch that stuff. I can't. 13 games under 500. Yep, but it doesn't matter now because it's like a right six now they're team in the NFL. Yeah, exactly. That's all that matters. They're one and zero in the second season. Yep. It's like a, it's like a six and ten team in the NFL winning a division and and making it through the divisional round. Let's say the wild card round. I guess yep. it wouldn't be in the divisional round at six and ten. God, I would hope anyway. Uh, so keep on riding that chain that train, G Braves, because uh, you're not going to get many opportunities to do it. Uh, before we get out of here, one thing that we wanted to clarify. Because we've seen a lot on the tweets today, and um, you know, which I don't recommend. I don't re- recommend ever looking at the tweets or tweeting, for that matter. Just the the rule number one never of Twitter: tweet. never tweet. Um, but there has been a lot of discussion from people who are not necessarily well acquainted with the world of minor league baseball as to man, the Mets are going to sell so many tickets and so much merchandise at Instructional League, which is not how it works. No, Instructional not League how it works. not. Open to the public, not no. a, a thing. You, I mean, these are not games. Hang out in Port right. Lucy, yeah, and like try to catch in. a glimpse of Tebow driving up his car. No, it's a very open facility. It's easy to get to. It's heck getting out of there. I can tell you that much. At my experience this spring, but otherwise, uh, you know, it's it's not like you can go down there and watch him or buy tickets or you know, there's not going to be a souvenir stand, anything like that. Instructs is exactly as it sounds. It's there for young guys, guys getting their first years in, trying to learn what pro ball is all about. Uh, you know, you, you heard our guest this week talk about how he's just looking forward to, you know, seeing other the other guys in the organization. All, yeah. You spend so much of your time with one team, Instructs is a time to mix and match a little bit. Just see, try out a new position, try a new pitch, try out a new delivery. You know, take some time off and then come back at it for a couple of weeks just to see what happens um, for Tebow. It's try to show the Mets what you have so they can consider either sending you that, you know, the rumors about him potentially going to the fall. league. got, I believe that when I see it, 
or some other winter league, you know, what is their plan for him going forward once they get a longer look at him other than just his workout? Uh, so that's all the instructs is. It's it's not anything to plan your week around. Um, you know, you'll hear some some news around it of what scouts thought of him at instructs. You'll hear some. You'll definitely hear news about what the Mets thought about him while he's there. I'm sure he'll talk to the media about it. But uh, yeah, don't don't look for it on MILB TV or any real uh, actual news channel. No, but where you can actually look for Tim Tebow during the Instructional League is on the SEC Network, which will be bringing you coverage <laughs> all fall long. That'll do it for the 75th edition of the Show Before the Show podcast. Sam is on Twitter. He's at Sam Dykes or M-I-L-B. I am on Twitter at Tyler Mon. You can bring us all of your scorchingest, hottest of hot Tebow takes there. And uh, the show you can find on iTunes, you can find on Stitcher, and you can find everywhere else. You listen to podcasts, and you can give us a rating and a review and a subscription and all that kind of stuff as well. And that will do it for uh, this week's edition of the show before the show. I didn't miss anything, did I? Did no. I miss anything? I will I okay. will throw out one thing. i actually been holding back on this. Uh, you can email the podcast. Oh, yeah. That's I'm sure right. we mentioned that. Uh, podcast at MILB.com. Very self-explanatory. Oh, yeah. But we got one inter- email this week. I don't know if you saw it, Tyler. Just entitled Boat Owners. Yeah, I did see the Boat Owners email. And the first line is, hi, will you be curious in getting an email list of boat owners from USA? I'm going to say they, no. How do they know? How do they know? But that if I'm anybody gonna... wants to send us a list of boat owners, a list of boat owners or a list of anything, uh, feel free to reach yeah. out through us through that way. Us we like lists. Or if you want to make our afternoon, just email us a, yeah. something that says boat owners. Yeah. Just do that. And it'll be a good inside joke we all have now. Totally. So, uh, I love so, lists. Yeah. I love lists. I love charts. I love maps like Russell Crowe. I love it all. <laughs> Boat owners. Okay. That'll do it. That's it for uh, episode 75. Talk to you next week. Thanks for tuning in and uh, enjoy the minor league postseason. We'll talk to you in a week. <laughs> <laughs>